1: This is New Books in Eastern European Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Eva Fodor about her new book, The Gender Regime of Anti-Liberal Hungary, which was published by Palgrave in 2022 and is also open access. Welcome, Eva. Hello. So just a little background on Dr. Fodor before we begin. She received her PhD in sociology from UCLA, and is currently Professor of Gender Studies at Central European University in Vienna, where she is also a member of CEU's Senior Leadership Team as Pro-Rector for Foresight and Analysis. She works in the field of comparative social inequalities and is specifically interested in how and why gender differences in the labor market and elsewhere are shaped, reshaped, renegotiated and reproduced in different types of societies and in different social contexts. In addition to the many articles and book chapters she has written on gender and welfare in socialist and post-socialist Eastern Europe, she is author of Working Difference, Women's Working Lives in Hungary and Austria 1945 to 1995, which was published with Duke University Press in 2003. So, Eva, can you tell us how you came to write this book? Yes.
0: Um, thank you, and thank you, Jill, for uh, for this opportunity to talk about my book. Um, well, I um, I was actually planning to write about foster parents, not at all about um, anti-liberal Hungary or or a sort of not not a not a book about um, uh, the society as a whole, but about a specific segment of uh, of society, a specific group because i wanted to explore how um how women agree to do really difficult care work for almost no money so what the reasons might be and what the justifications um are for for taking on this kind of work but um but, and and there were you know there were theories out there that maybe they do this out of um financial need but it was obvious that that's not the only reason so i was interested in how financial need opportunity and gender ideology come together and force people or sort of push people into basically, self, particularly women, into this kind of self-exploitation. And I started to research this in the middle of um, the 2010s, so around 2014-15, uh, exactly at the time um, uh, when the government passed a piece of legislation um, that um, incentivized, they started to incentivize um, um, exactly this kind of work, more of this kind of self-exploitation. Um, basically, the government started to pass a slew of pro-natalist policies, which encouraged women to have more children, yet not stop working for wages. So basically increasing um, not just foster parents' workload, but overall women's workload. And this is how I switched from writing only about foster parents to writing about the gender regime of um, this new policy regime.
1: Right, because it's a part of this larger, uh, as you note in the book, one of your major themes, carefare regime that's being instituted and promoted by the Orban regime. And uh, I'd actually like to begin with the basics. Um, so how is it that Viktor Orban came to power and that he was uh, eventually able to dismantle democracy in Hungary, uh, a European Union country? And what is a liberal democracy And you know, for our listeners who are perhaps somewhat unfamiliar with, you know, the trajectory of Hungary after 1989, this will be useful. Yes, um, um, this is really the background to this story. So
0: Viktor Orbán uh, came to power in 2010. Um, he is the leader of um, um, Hungary's uh, one of Hungary's right wing conservative parties. Now it's the largest, and uh, and not even, and, and, and moving to the um, to the uh, extremes um, you know, in the right direction. At the time when he came into power in 2010, it was just a right wing party called Fides, the Alliance of Young Democrats, and in co- and he was elected via democratic elections in 2010, um, and and formed a government in coalition with a, a tiny Christian Democratic party, um, and he has been in power since. Um, was elected um, two more times, um, in 2014 and 2018, um, in similarly, more or less uh, democratic elections. I mean, democratic elections with some tilt towards uh, the government sides. And there, what's really interesting is that their elections are coming up in this year, too. Uh, they're going to be on April 3rd, and the projections are that he could easily win those elections again. Um, so he's been in power for for over a decade, and during this decade, he he profoundly uh, changed the the political landscape of the country. After um, the collapse of state socialism in 1990, Hungary moved towards a liberal democracy and, um, you know, governments came and went, some more right-wing than others, but generally everything was, uh, you know, uh, uh, followed a western pattern of, um, of, of, of policy regimes. Um, in, in 2004, Hungary joined the European Union, again sort of pushing Hungary into uh, uh, towards um, abiding by the rule of law and um, and respecting democratic principles. Orbán put pretty much an end to that process, and started to and, and immediately after he, he took power he started to introduce um, policies and, and le- pieces of legislation laws that um, that moved the country away from uh, uh, the the principle of uh, liberal democracies um, and and towards something um, uh, that we can define in different ways and researchers define in different ways some call it illiberal others call it authoritarian uh, there are lots and lots of names for for the phenomenon that he created um he introduced as i said he introduced um a number of policies now what do i mean um first of all the first thing that the government that the new government did in 2011 was to change the constitution and uh, the the constitution um changed um, electoral procedures in a way that favored Uh, The government, the constitution also limited the rule of law, limited the the independence of the judiciary. Later on, um, uh, the 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 government, uh, this right wing government of Viktor Orban, um, appropriated most national media, most of the local and regional media as well, limiting the freedom of the media. limited academic freedom in so many different ways that if I were to start talking about it, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't stop until the end of this discussion. Um, And so basically put an end to a lot of um, um, civic liberties, limited the uh, the workings of NGOs, um, created a number of uh, fake uh, government friendly NGOs and funded them and built up a whole group of uh, of rich cadres who received um, um, um money from um uh, illegal, illegally received money from uh, um, from uh, from tenders and from business procedures most of them funded by the european union structural funds um so uh through majorly corrupt procedures so all of these This is a characterization of the regime um, that a lot of people call illiberal. In fact, Viktor Orban himself called it an illiberal democracy. He said uh, that um, in contrast to what uh, Western powers are doing, he's actually building an illiberal democracy. He said that in 2014 and uh, And a lot of people are now uh, referring to to this type of regime as as such, even though this concept is not his own. He did not invent the concept of an illiberal democracy and Hungary is certainly not the only illiberal democracy. Orbán is taking a a lot of pointers from uh, Putin, for example, of Russia, um, as well as um, a bunch of um, other sort of uh, less than democratic leaders in uh, in Latin American and and Asian Asian countries. So, um, While uh, the concept of a democracy or a country where elections are democratically um, organized, yet actual sort of decision making procedures are not democratic and which favors an illiberal ideology or or rejects liberal values is not unique to Hungary, but um, uh, Viktor Orban has has pursued it from power um, um, for the past 12 years in this country.
1: And he certainly succeeded, and uh, of course, it's quite uh, a contrast to what pundits, policymakers believed uh, would occur in Eastern Europe after 1989, and certainly you know, once the EU agreed uh, to membership for a number of these um, former socialist countries. I'd like to move on to your introduction now, and in your, in your introduction, you state that the aim of your book is to highlight different aspects of the newly emerging state gender regime. So the transformation of women into carefare workers and the gender regime's potential or real impact not only on gender, but also on class inequalities. So can you elaborate on this and explain to our listeners what a gender regime is? A gender regime is a
0: concept that um, a lot of sociologists use to, to describe sort of the overall um, state of gender relations in in a country or uh, within a particular institution in a country. I think the originator or the inventor of the concept is R. W. Connell, who in her um, very famous book, Gender and Power, introduced this concept and described it as uh, as the state of play in, uh, of, in regarding gender relations in a given institution. The state is is, is a good example or a school or, or any other um, institution. And there are different levels uh, that you can analyze this. Others since have um, have used it like uh, Sylvia Walby, for example. But there is some discussion also among sociologists whether or not um, it is useful at all to, to characterize a whole institution or a whole society by, by a single description or or the details are, are also terribly important. To me, the reason why this is an important concept or why this is useful is because it allows me to, to argue that gender is not um, separate from other types of social processes. And gender policies are built into um, um, the policy regimes. Um, they're not um, They're not independent of how countries work. They're not additional, but they're, an integral part of uh, how societies are set up, and gen- and and policies that that target gender roles also shape political regimes. So this com it is this combination. Um, I think that the concept of gender regime allows me to describe.
1: Could you tell us a little bit more about this idea of carefare and how it is that women were transformed into these carefare workers, right? And it's not just about care at, in the home, right? Caring for children or elderly. They are expected to do kind of double or even triple duty. Right. So carefare regime is a form, in, 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 in,
0: in the book, I argue that carefare regime is a form of a welfare regime where um, a type of a welfare state or a way to characterize a, welpa- a welfare state where care is the basis of claiming social citizenship rights. Um, in, you know, if if you do more care work, then you're more likely to receive benefits. And this is exactly the the gist of the past 10 years of uh, of uh, Hungary's uh, welfare um, uh, legislations. Um, more increasingly, people can claim. Um, social support on the basis of care responsibilities, not only care responsibilities, those care responsibilities in the home have to be combined with paid work elsewhere. But um, the Hungarian state has passed laws that, um, that give generous, really, really generous um, uh, benefits and allowances and loans and tax rebates to
1: people with children, to, to working families with children.
0: This is what I call a care regime.
1: Well, speaking as an American where we don't have those types of benefits, and if we take a federal leave from our jobs, it's usually unpaid. What's so wrong with the fair regime then? I mean, it sounds pretty uh, appealing to those of us who kind of do this work without getting any type of payment for it, any type of acknowledgement. I agree. And there's lots of good things about um,
0: supporting people to, to, to do care work. But... Um, and, and, but, and let me give you a few types uh, of ways in which um, uh, this support is realized. So for example, there's a tax rebate. Uh, if somebody has um, children, then they, um, they, they, they get a tax rebate. Uh, this is like the earned income tax Credit in, in the US. Or if somebody has a child or agrees to have, or a family, uh, you know, a, a married couple, agrees to have a child or, 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 um, or, or, or promises to have, uh, have children, then they can get a loan. A rather large loan, in fact, um, um, which they can spend on anything. But And if they don't end up having those children within the specified amount of time, then they have to pay it back. Or uh, families with children can get um, uh, vast amounts of uh, uh, sums to renovate their apartments, to build houses, to buy apartments. Um, so or even um, in terms of pandemic relief, the Hungarian government did not take care of most groups of people except for uh, families with children who um, are now receiving a sizable tax rebate as a way to compensate for uh, the issues that they might or the problems that they they might have had during the pandemic. At first sight, there's nothing wrong with this. But if if you look more closely, then there are a number of issues that come up. The first thing is that um, most of these benefits um, only go to certain groups of people because they're related to income. So if you have a, a good income, then you can, you can utilize the tax benefits much more than if you have a very small income. The pandemic relief is such that people that only people with well over the average uh, national income can, can receive the whole amount. So if you have two children and are working for wages, but only make minimum wages, which is a lot of people in Hungary, then you're getting very, very little, but if you're working for a lot of money, if you have a really good job and you need this a whole lot less, then you're getting a whole lot Then you're getting much more, you, you get a much higher tax rebate. Um, a pandi- a much higher pandemic relief um, tax, uh, a tax debate related to the pandemic. So this increases inequalities among um, among women and um, among families. Uh, the, 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 so this kind of the, the 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 ways in which this regime works the ways in which this legislation is um is formulated um creates inequ- create, exacerbates already existing inequalities and create, you know, create sort of further creates more the, also some people are completely excluded um for example those who do not have paid jobs because even though um the benefits are are, are can only be claimed if you have children but not only do you have to have children, but you also have to have a job and the job in the formal economy. Now, a significant proportion of Hungarians work for wages, yes, but don't work in the formal economy. but work the ta- under the table, work without um, contracts, um, sort of illegally or in the grey economy. Um, a lot of uh, minority pop- the, the minority population, the Roma population in Hungary, which is very disadvantaged, they're a whole lot less likely than the, um, uh, the non-ROMA population to, to, to get um, a formal job. Now, these groups are fully excluded from all of these benefits. So this is the second. So the first problem is that it increases inequality. The second is that it actually excludes people. The third is that it cements um, gender roles because it, it also it, sort of, it builds on the idea that women are the ones who are doing the care work. Um, it addresses, most of these pieces of legislation address um, uh, families, but also um, uh, women in particular, and women and, and argues that and, and sort of assumes that it's women's job to be doing this kind of work. It also cements the idea that, um, that the heterosexual family is the only important and significant unit in society, mom, dad, and children. And this has to be mom and dad. It cannot be two fathers. It cannot be two mothers. It's only heterosexual married couples who are eligible to all of the benefits. Now, less than half of of Hungarians live in these kinds of in in, in this kind of arrangement. There are lots of single people, lots of elderly people. Those are completely ignored. And if you build a welfare state that really centers on um, on on uh, funding childcare work, then you really exclude a lot of people. And if you do it in a way that it um, that that it that you favor people only a certain group, a very elite and, and middle class to higher up group of people who do care work, then you really exclude a large chunk of the population and you increase inequalities, so this is the problem with the with uh, with these. Um, uh, uh, benefits that uh, the government has, has devised. To support families, it's not. It sounds um, so. These benefits sound very generous, and indeed, they're very generous for some people. But for many, they're not generous, and for those, almost nothing is available. So Hungary had universal benefits, but those have um, been eliminated, or their val- the value of these benefits have um, have uh, devalued to the point of them being completely worthless. So, so a lot of people are completely forgotten about while some uh, middle-class working families with uh, two or more children are, are extremely privileged
1: now. So it's classist, sexist, racist, and ageist. It manages to do all those things. Um, and heterosexist, heterosexist right. So because, yeah. Right. And actually, I had two related questions to it. So number one is, you know, you noted how benefits now are no longer universal as they had been under state socialism, at least to an extent, right? Of course, and this is this is actually one of my questions. So under state socialism, these types of benefits could be claimed also if you were employed, right? If you were a worker. And so I'm wondering about to what extent these forms of seemingly new forms of legislation are really building on older legacies. So older forms of, that is socialist uh, policies, but also practices and assumptions about gender roles. And so can we see any continuities? Um, and then my follow-up question I'll ask once you you answer this one.
0: Yes, so it's difficult to talk about continuities because there was um, a 20 year gap uh, between 1990 and 2010. When the policies were somewhat different, or I mean, quite different, really, Um, I think what we're seeing is is different now. So under state socialism, yes, um, benefits were um, some benefits were universal, others were uh, connected to uh, to social security, or at least um, um, being being in the labor market, labor force. But then everybody was in the labor force, so that really did not differentiate amongst people. Now this is not the case at all. Um, only about 60 percent of working age people are, are working for wages particularly for, in amongst women so uh, so um so be so ha- having an and many of them are not working in the formal labor market so this really the, the 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 requirement that somebody should have a paid formal work is now actually excluding people while during state socialism the same requirement did not exclude women uh, from or, or, or families from from the benefits. Now, there are some continuities, however, between uh, between the urban regime and urban regimes policies and the state socialist policies. This emphasis on um, on supporting pregnancies on pronatalism was already present in um, under state socialism as well. And state socialist policymakers also wanted um, uh, families to have more children. But I mean, they did this in a much a more much gentler way. Uh, the the difference uh, between those who had children and those who didn't was nowhere near as big as it is now. The um, the understanding that women should be doing um, uh, care work was all is also again not new. This is something that Hungarians um, uh, have long believed in, and this was true for state social, for the state socialist era as well. Um, So again, you're right, this has not changed. This is a continuity. And finally, um, the emphasis on heterosexual unions is um, is also not new. State socialist um, uh, policymakers simply decided not to talk about uh, non-heterosexual unions, um, but that didn't mean that they were any less um, um, homophobic than than the Orban regime is, uh, is now. So there are lots of continuities, I agree, but the sheer um, amount of uh, of money that's being distributed today and the sheer force of of, of this incentive uh, the, the the sheer pronatal the the sheer degree or or volume of uh, pronatalist effort is um, is staggering
1: right and um, I, I have another question about pronatalism later so I'll, I'll get to that then but i wanted to follow up on the heterosexist nature of these policies and how gender has become this catch all for a liberal agenda, right? What, what what Orban the Orban regime would argue is this liberal agenda that is antithetical to Hungarian values, Hungarian traditions. So how has it become this catch-all where it becomes a basis for, you know, arguing against an, a whole host of groups and demonizing anything that is considered uh what they would argue is contrary to being a pure Hungarian?
0: Indeed, um the term gender itself has become this catch-all word. Um, In preparation for this interview, I counted um, the number of articles that use the term gender, um, that have used the term gender since January 1st in one of the the major online um, right-wing newspapers. And since January 1st, which is roughly 50 days or or 60 days now, 31 articles uh, were published that uses the term gender. Now, gender is not a term, uh, it's not a Hungarian word. It's it is a, it's a foreign term in, in the Hungarian language. Yet they use this term not because they're talking about gender inequality or because they're talking about um, women's disadvantage in the labor market, but they use the term exactly to basically argue that Hungarians are different from... Uh, What's going on in the West? What we do is um, the special Hungarian way. It's um, uh, we're, uh, to, they use the term to distance um, uh, Hungarians from Western liberal norms. Now, this is not quite my field, but um, but from what I've read, um, this anti-gender discourse has been around quite a for quite a long time, and it's not unique to Hungary at all. In fact, um, the literature suggests that. Um, It started to uh, become popular after the Beijing uh, Conference on Women in 1995 when the term gender mainstreaming was introduced by by feminists, introduced into the policymaking um, uh, realm by feminists. And at that point, um, in fact, the Catholic Church objected to the the use of the term gender. And they objected and objected and nothing much happened. But after, you know, within 10 years, the term was picked up. And the whole movement started an international movement that, um, that, that, uh, that had followers in numerous countries from Western Europe to Latin America to Eastern Europe, um, which argued that and, 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 you know, and the movement covered a number of uh, areas, but mostly argued that, um, uh, that, that the, the gender does not exist. That we should not be um, um, uh, talking about gender; we should only be talking about uh, sex, and um, um, you know, all these feminist movements have uh, are misguided. Now, Hungary is um, was a bit late into this um, anti-gender uh, scene, and uh, and Hungarian poly- and so Hungarian policymakers picked up on the usefulness of uh, the anti-gender discourse uh, only in the in in 2015, 16 and then started to connect. Oh, and there was a reason why they did that, because in uh, the middle of uh, 2015, a huge wave of migrants passed through Hungary. And the whole idea of, um, of migration and refugees and, um, and, and people who are not Hungarians on the territories of Hungary became an issue. So the Hungarian government started to argue that this is bad, migration is bad. We should not be accepting any migrants, any refugees into the country. Instead, we should be having more children. And it is at this point that this anti-gender discourse started to make sense to policymakers. When um, when they started to argue that we should not be buying into these Western dis- uh, talks, about, Western discourse about uh gender roles and uh, people choosing their own gender and uh, non-heterosexual unions, we should be sticking to old Christian democratic uh, or, or Christian Christian or, and Catholic values of uh, what the family is and what men and women are. Um, and, insta- and, and, and and have children instead of welcoming um, uh, and, and support families and, and, and childbearing, childbearing and childbearing instead of uh, uh, welcoming migrants into the country, so um, the concept of gender was picked up as a, a political slogan um, the anti gender discourse was picked up as a political slogan in Hungary too to argue um, uh, for um, hungary 's um, uh, different type of uh, uh, hungary's different type of social policy and social um, um, uh, direction uh, from the West. And it was linked to everything that's bad or that everything that, um, that Hungarian p- policymakers considered problematic in the West and everything that they thought that people would uh, would uh, find um, offensive or, or problematic in Western Europe, including um, LGBTQ rights, indeed migration, not just migration, but LGBTQ rights as well. Initially, actually, the Hungarian government used gender to uh, uh, to mostly talk about the European Union and the European Union's critique of Hungary um and then only later did they start to um uh, uh, to move into associating the term gender with the LGBTQ uh, rights movement and uh, and also with um uh, you know with yeah with the LGBTQ rights movement mostly so initially, it was about the, the EU and the EU's migration policy, and then sort of moved on to use gender to argue against um, uh, gay rights and, uh, and, and and gay marriage. Um, this, so at, at this now, uh, most of those articles, most of the thirty articles which uh, appeared in uh, in, the, in this Hungarian right-wing uh, uh, daily, actually uh, roughly one a day, uh, most of those are about. Um, Western uh, countries that introduced the legislation that uh, was uh, favorable to gay marriage, to LGBTQ rights, to uh, trans people,
1: etc. Yeah, it's it's fascinating that um, for a regime that doesn't believe that gender exists, that they're so focused on it, right? And I understand it's to demonize the European Union and, and other countries that do embrace ideas of gender difference. But I, I just find it fascinating. It's as if, you know, they're, they're obsessed with it, right? And of course, it becomes a basis for legitimacy. And certainly, they're not alone, right? I mean, you see this happening in Poland, it's happening in Romania and other parts. I'd like to actually, though, ask a little bit about the EU. So Hungary becomes an EU member in 2004, um, and they have to align themselves legislatively, Right according to EU legislation right prior to this. But so that doesn't matter though. I mean, how is it that they became an EU member, but now they're flouting the types of legislation that they signed on to, or that they aligned with?
0: Oh, we have aligned all our legislation with um, EU norms. And we had um, established, Hungary at the time in 2004, established all the proper institutions that were to monitor first of all, introduce and manage and then monitor um, gender equality, um, the introduction or the, or, or the, the well, basically monitor the realization of gender equality um, uh, in Hungary. But then the urban, urban government um, slowly got rid of each one of these. So Hungary is supposed to, I mean, by EU law, we, were, we are supposed to have uh, um, an, an action plan or a roadmap um, for gender equality. We're also supposed to have an equal opportunity commission. We're supposed to have uh, units within ministries that, or within state secretariats uh, that oversee uh, gender equality issues. All of those were eliminated. And right. What's what's really sad is that the European Union or representatives of the European Union, you know, might have mentioned that this is not such a good idea, but certainly did not do anything about it.
1: So I'd like to talk a little bit, you know, go back to this definition and thinking about carefare. So you talked about how in policy some of the carefare initiatives are elaborated, but what about in media depictions? Because you talk about media depictions, and and by the way, your sources are really uh, fantastic because they're they're macro, meso, and and micro, and of course we're going to get to that in talking about the uh, interviews. But can you talk about how? This carefare regime is promoted in media, and then how it shapes everyday practices.
0: I think I already did a little bit when I um, when I mentioned the fact that um, the concept of how, the concept of gender is being used in, in the media, but the government is really using um, the carefare regime and the the policies, these pro-natalist policies, as uh, as as a way to claim political legitimacy and now as an election electoral strategy uh, as a as sort of as an as part of their election campaign so um, so do we see there, this on billboards and commercials absolutely so there are uh, to, to a great degree reminiscent of the state socialist era there's uh, you know a regular gender propaganda Um, on on huge billboards um, showing mom and dad and several children, all white, um, everybody middle class, um, um, mom doing most of the care work, uh, father supporting the family. So all of these extremely traditional roles. So most of the depiction of uh, of families um, is along uh, along this line. So there's a, so this the this traditional gender ideology that suggests that women should be doing the, all of this care work comes at us from every angle. The media is one of them, but yes, billboards as well, as well as from um, the words of politicians uh, um, whenever they when they start talking about um, um, gender or whenever, whenever they address um, women themselves.
1: Scholars would refer to this as positive forms of pronatalism, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with that, but usually there's this distinction between negative policies associated with pronatalism, such as the complete criminalization of abortion, and then these incentives, right, these monetary incentives. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that um, in in Mm comparison to places like Poland, because, you know, obviously policymakers are claiming there's a demographic crisis. And yes, a lot of Hungarians are choosing to leave the country, right, young people, because they don't want to live in this illiberal democracy and they want more opportunities and they have them in the West. But there hasn't been an effort to criminalize abortion. That that is not true. There has so the Hungarian the,
0: one of the first things that the Hungarian government did was um, insert a preamble to the to the new Hungarian into the new Hungarian constitution that said that um, life begins at conception. So this did not criminalize abortion, but it set the scene uh, for the possibility to do so. The Hungarian public is very supportive of uh, women's rights. To abortion, so it would be very difficult and politically problematic to, uh, for the government to do this. So they're obviously not going to be doing this right before the elections. But I would not be terribly surprised if there were attacks against abortion rights um, after the elections. Indeed, this is different from Poland, uh, where abortion is illegal in every practically every shape or form. But um, so, yes, um, to that extent, um, um, the Hungarian government is. Um, is practicing a different type of pronatalism. But I disagree that this is a positive type of pronatalism. This is a positive type of pronatalism if you're a white middle-class working uh, parent. But it's not a positive type of uh, pronatalism if you're anything other than this category and you're not receiving any benefits uh, from the state, any type of solidarity, you have no social rights, you're deprived of your social rights. So that is a form of deprivation as well, only it deprives specific groups of people of um, of, of of social rights, citizenship rights. To this, in, on this level, Poland is actually um, doing something a whole lot more uh, fair. Poland introduced um, also a financial motivation to have children, but um, uh, something that's called the Poland 500 plus program. But the 500 plus program provides universal benefits. So whether you're uh, um, um, you have a high income or not you get exactly the same amount of money per child and and that is quite different from what's happening um, in, in Hungary I actually think that um, that that this national level um, so you can think about pronatalism as uh, as negative even if it is um, creating a national level um, um, sort of inequalities uh, rather than um, so not not actually violating individual people's bodies but violating sort of social rights for for groups of people.
1: Right, and not offering these universal benefits. And also, you noted the ways in which it's clearly heterosexist and and racist. But what is the reason for not offering the universal benefits? Well, the Hungarian government obviously wants to encourage the
0: birth of uh, of children to working parents. So this is um, the birth of white children. To a great degree, these policies are extremely racist and forget about the needs of children who do not belong to this group. So this is this is targeting a specific group of, um, in, in, of the population for childbearing.
1: And to that extent, uh, this is also extremely problematic. But for the really poor women, right, they're not eligible for the benefits. And so it, it's almost as if it's also very... They want to promote the growth of this middle class, uh, right? Yes. So the, of, there's
0: yeah. middle class, lower middle. So yeah. even lower class pe- women are eligible. Lower class families are eligible for some of the benefits. If mm. you have um, no formal job, you, you're not. Yes. Um, so if you're very poor, if you have no job, then uh, then uh, then you're not eligible. Um, for the past few years, before the pandemic, has been. Um, Really prosperous in Hungary. So, um, labor force participation increased because there was the number of jobs increased. But uh, this was fortunate. But uh, if that had not been the case, then even more people would have been excluded from these benefits. So, the government wants to encourage birth. To, yeah, yeah. So, this is a way to support, um, to create and support an, an, a loyal middle class um, electorate and ignoring those who were more destitute.
1: Yeah, it almost smacks of certain types of initiatives in the interwar period in terms let of me, eugenics right, movement. Me, exactly. So this is in some
0: ways a eugenic form of uh, pronatalism,
1: Because not only, so on the
0: one hand, there are um, these positive incentives to have children, but at the same time, the government, I, I mentioned this briefly, but let me repeat, the government also is devaluing existing universal benefits. So we also have a family benefit scheme in Hungary that's universal. But the value of the money that's being distributed has not changed um, for the past 15 years. So it basically lost most of it, its value due to, to, to inflation. Mm-hmm. So this is an active way of taking money away from people who would not be eligible for uh, uh, the for these new types of benefits. So disadvantaging people in in this particular category. So there's it's also so these policies. We don't normally see this because we see a zillion um, uh, opportunities for uh, parents uh, families with children to 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 get access to benefits and, and allowances and and support, but we don't see what's being taken away from those who are more needy because they're not actually being taken away, so the government doesn't say okay th- this I, I put an end to this program. they just simply don't um, um, follow the inflation rate and therefore it loses um, all of the value of the of the money that's being distributed.
1: It's like a subordinate category of citizenship essentially. Yes. I'm curious about the role of the church in promoting the carefare regime. So what does the church do? That's a very,
0: that's an important uh, part of my book. Um, So Hungary, so in 2018, Viktor Orbán declared Hungary a Christian democracy. Four years earlier, he had, Called it an illiberal democracy, but four years later he changed his mind and called it a Christian democracy. And he argued that uh, Hungary is reaching back to European traditions, um, uh, so you know, the old-fashioned ones, not the more modern traditions, but the old-fashioned ones, the ones related to Christianity and Christian democracy. Now, this sounds very innocent and sort of gentlemanly, but that's not quite, um, that's not quite all. Um, Hungarian churches are are historically weak players on the political scene and the most um, you know major strong Hungarian kings and rulers had full control over the churches and this is sort of the same uh, situation now uh, the main churches the catholic church and the protestant church are extremely loyal to the government just to give you an example the catholic um, archbishop of hungary decided that um, declared that supporting refugees these are people who are refugees to hungary equals um, uh, basically trafficking of people. He said that in, tw- in 2015, when this um, sort of flood of refugees um, came through Hungary and uh, the Catholic Church did nothing to help the people who were stranded in Budapest uh, without food or, or, or access to any resources or shelter. So And, and, and did so because um, the, the government refused to acknowledge the, the existence or refused to help the, the refugees. So the, the, the Catholic church and the large churches are extremely um, loyal to the government and the government actively builds alliances between these loyal churches and the state. The, the welfare state literature talks about the decommodification of um, the, 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 the commodification of welfare service, not the, de- but the commodification of uh, welfare services. The idea that, um, that states, Shed certain services instead of providing services, they um, they, they contract uh, private uh, providers to provide those services. So basically, push this, push uh, state services to the market, and um, and and force people to buy those services on the market with some support. And so support the, the state, sub, state support to the providers, and people are super, are expected to to use these market marketized providers for those services. The Hungarian government does something very similar. The Hungarian state is also shedding uh, the responsibility to provide services to people, but instead of uh, um, offering these to private actors, it actually pays money to the churches, to the loyal churches to offer these services. So in Hungary, increasingly educational services, social services, care services are not provided by state institutions but are provided by churches. Um, This is in fact um, uh, what happened to foster parenting as well and this is why foster parenting, this is one of the reasons why foster parenting and the transformation of foster parenting is a very good example of how the carefare state works, is that um, um, initially there were lots of state institutions which managed fostering and foster parenting um, this was the case even 10 years ago. Now, all of the foster care agencies are run by churches, and those churches are funded by the state. If a non-church institution wants to uh, to, to be part of the process, or if a, non, uh, a private um, institution or a private um, um, school wants to function in Hungary, that's fine, and the state does allocate some resources, but significantly less than it would per child, to a church organization, so the state basically sta- uh, favors churches, uh, funds churches, and um, and distributes this role of most sort of increased uh, an increasingly vast amount of uh, educational and social um, work to to churches and church organizations. This I call it the churchification of the state.
1: Right, and not to claim that. State institutions are necessarily neutral, because certainly in the case of Hungary, you've outlined the fact that they're not. But we're talking about a body that clearly has a particular agenda, a message. And so that's going to affect the way in which foster care plays out in identifying care workers, I would imagine, and who is eligible then to be a foster parent?
0: Oh, absolutely. And how children are raised, what, what children, you know, the fact that children have to attend church services. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not only the case for foster parents. This is true for education as well. So schools, simple, you know, elementary schools. The state pays a church-run elementary school more money per child than it does to a state-run elementary school. In a way, putting state-run elementary schools out of business and increasing the role of church-run elementary schools in, in the field of education. And the same is true for social work and, and other forms of care work and care provisions.
1: So I'd like to talk a little bit about the foster parents and what their responsibilities are and and, and you know who are your typical foster parents and are certain categories of people, some of the ones you mentioned, excluded from being foster parents?
0: Well, in, there's an increasing need in Hungary uh, for foster parents because um, there are the, the the group of people who are becoming impoverished is increasing and um, and therefore um, children need alternative forms of care um, and state institutions are not really helping families um, not really helping impoverished or poor or uh, poor or, 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 or poor families um, to to pull cool themselves out of poverty what they're doing is they're helping middle class families uh, uh, get get richer or get you know get more stable uh, financially. Um, so because of this, there's an increasing need for foster parents and the state introduced legislation that um, um, that would professionalize foster parenting. So until the mid 2010s, uh, foster parenting was um, a voluntary occupation in Hungary. If you wanted to be a foster parent, you raised a child or two and you got no money for it. You did this um, out of the kindness of your heart. But with the, the increase in need uh, for foster parents and with the intention of um, basically exercising more centralized control over the work of foster parents, the state started to um, to professionalize this role and um, employed started to started to um, argue that foster parents are employ employees of um, their foster parent agencies and who receive wages. What's interesting, though, is that the wages that they set uh, was were well below the minimum wage. So they ended up, so these foster parent agencies ended up with um, a labor force, which is almost exclusively a female, paid, doing an extreme amount of care work because they had an increasing number of, of children coming from very, you know, really difficult backgrounds who they had to take care of. Um, and they were paid now, but they were paid about 40% of the minimum wage. The, the minimum wage that the, that the state set for itself. So this is what the legislation this is still the case this is what the legislation achieved it created this uh, this extremely exploited feminized um, uh, labor force who is doing care work which is why foster parents are such a great example of um, what a, what a care first it does it forces women to be do- to be doing to be self exploiting in the field of care work to be um to be doing care work well, about uh, for almost no 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 money, or for very little uh, remuneration, for very little security, and um, yeah, do a lot of it and an increasing amount of it, and uh, and do it in in increasingly difficult conditions. This is what I found on the basis of uh, of my interviews with the with with uh, with foster parents.
1: And what are some of their experiences? The nature of their experiences. I mean, foster parents. Um.
0: Um. A lot of the poster parents who i talk talked to experience this change also as a, as a way, I mean, exactly the way I describe it. They used to be voluntary, um, they used to do this voluntarily, and they used to get gratitude, and they used to feel that they're doing something important. Then they were transformed into workers, and they themselves understood that they're not very well-paid workers. In fact, they're extremely underpaid workers. One of them said that, Hey, if this is work, then it's clearly slavery. It's slave work, because the kind of wages—I mean, if you calculated the uh, per-hour wages—that was it was ridiculous. It still is ridiculous. It has not changed. So they themselves were quite upset about the change. A lot of them were. Yet many of them were in um, in rather precarious uh, financial conditions, and to them, the idea that they were now workers, which meant that they had social security, so they had healthcare. They didn't have to do it through their parents or through, through didn't have to uh, use emergency services, but they actually had some healthcare and uh, even um, discounted towards their pensions, um, even if it was paid at a minimum wage, was an improvement. So if you're really extremely poor, uh, then even a little improvement, a little financial, some financial resources are quite useful. And, and um, a lot of them were grateful for... Uh, for the kind of wages, for, for even this, these little wages that they, that they got, while others noted that, uh, that, that it is, in fact, humiliating to be, to be called a worker for, for this amount of money. So I could see both, and I could understand, of course, both approaches.
1: Right, so it's pretty complicated and diverse in terms of how women are experiencing uh, this policy on the ground. Uh, and I wanted to actually relate this to another issue you bring up, uh, namely, the sentimentalization of women's work. So you discuss how the regime has really sentimentalized women's labor uh, as a part of the larger carefare discourse. So what do these discourses look like? Uh, and you mention a woman politician who basically justified women's lower earnings uh, on this basis, that is by sentimentalizing women's work.
0: Her name is Katalin Novak, and she's going to be the president of Hungary. Um, in a few months. Um, she basically said that there's um, there's there's no reason for women to be competing with men. Women should be grateful for uh, the ability to bear children and um, leave it. And, and, and yes, they should be paying, should be working, but um, they shouldn't be competing on the labor market with men. Indeed, um, as I already mentioned, uh, the ideology is, uh, is pervasive. So, as I, as I said, one of the reasons why I was interested in foster parents was that I wanted to know why women agreed to do such self exploitation. And this is again, the question with, with this carefare regime and not just for foster parents, because the carefare regime increases women's work burden. Women are, um, it is well known from statistics in Hungary that, um, that women do most of the child care work in the household. If there are more children, then women are even more likely to be doing more of the household work so if this is the case then we would expect that if a family has more children that increases of course everybody's work burden but mostly women's women's now in addition women are also expected to be working full-time in the labor market as our would-be president said not necessarily on the same level as men but they would still have to be you know, doing a full-time job because there's almost no part-time work in Hungary. So you put all of those together, women are doing a whole lot of work and carefare forces women into, into this position. This is how you can get access to benefits. Now, why do women do this? I argue that one reason, how one, one way in which it, this is achieved is through the sentimentalization of, um, of women's work. This is part of the government propaganda. It basically argues that care work is extremely valuable, but only women can do it. Women are the experts at care work. Um, women were born to do care work. This is what being a woman means. All women should be doing care work. They should be grateful to be doing care work, um, to be able to bear children as our, um, as our would-be president um, um, said. And, um, but care work is such that should not be uh, paid. It's all, you know, care work is done out of the love uh, out of love out of uh, you know from the depth of your heart and um, and women do this because um, because they have this eternal love towards their, their their children and their and their partners. This is what I mean by the sentimentalization of women's work and I think this is a a part of the ideology that um, helps construct uh, the kind of citizen the kind of female citizen that would be willing to uh, to be doing this the form of self-exploitation that carefire requires.
1: Right. And this is a longstanding justification for not paying women to do care work. I mean, we still see this in many parts of the globe where women's domestic labor is not recognized as equal to that you do outside the home, right? And so by yeah. sentimentalizing it, it's, it's essentialized as something that only women can do. It's um, absolutely true, but rarely
0: do you hear nowadays from, um, the, the, from, um, top level politicians to be pushing this ideology so it you wouldn't be hearing um, um that that they that they're claiming that women should not be paid for care work that women should be that it is women in women's nature to be doing more care work to be to be caring um this is not this is not part of the the discourse of uh, of politicians uh nowadays except it is in hungary
1: Right, and um, it gives men a free pass, right? Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so my final question is, do we see birth rates increasing as a result of these policies?
0: Yes. Yes, birth rates are in fact increasing. Uh, They increased um, really sharply at first, but they're still increasing uh, regardless of the pandemic. In fact, uh, the uh, pro-natalist policies worked in Poland as well. so they had some impact. The problem is that the birth rate increased um, to a total fertility rate of now, I think, 1.59. The Hungarian Statistical Office just released um, the most recent uh, statistics on this. So the total fertility rate is now 1.59, which is very far from the replacement rate um, that we need, which is 2.1, that the government argued Hungary will have by 2030 as a result of, uh, of these policies. That's never going to happen. So, um, Indeed, these policies, you know, achieved a small um, increase in in the birth rate, but but did so at the detriment of um, of other uh, important aspects of society and did not achieve the the goal, which was um, to to create um, a country where, which can increase the size of its population without migration.
1: Right. So it seems like there's no way they're going to get above the natural or even reach the natural replacement level, right? Not even close. Well, our interview has come to a close. And thank you so much, Ava, for sharing your work with us. It's a fascinating, albeit disconcerting analysis of contemporary gender, family and social policies in Hungary. And I will remind our listeners uh, that the book is open access. So the Gender Regime of Anti-Liberal Hungary, which was published this year with Palgrave. And before I let you go, could you tell us what you're currently working on?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, and thank you for having me and thank you for listening. I'm um, I, I um, I'm still working on, uh, on work, <laughs> on gender and work. I'm interested in uh, new forms of labor control that are emerging um, after the pandemic and as a result of um, digitalization and home office work. I'm still interested in why people work. Like I was uh, um, with this first, with this previous book, when I was interested in why women are are doing all this care work. Now I'm interested in why people who work in the home offices work. How do employers make sure that they do? What kind of uh, processes are in place uh, uh, for employers to discipline workers? And I'm also interested in, in how, um, yeah. So I'm interested in the digitalization of work and how, um, people from, uh, from, from, from what we call the second world, these post-state socialist countries can sell their labor power, not as migrants, but as digital migrants, as how they can sell their labor power on, um, on, on platforms, how they do platform work, whether or not um, nationality or regional belonging has an impact on, on, on this process and what kind of impact it has. So these are, these are my interests right now.
1: That's really fascinating when you put it, you know, I think of it in the context of the high emigration rates in many countries in Eastern Europe. So maybe we'll see a sea change as a result of, uh, you know, the pandemic basically, which forced so many people to work from home. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, we'll see. I mean, this is, this is difficult to to answer and uh, it will require a great deal of research, but I think the word is going in this direction. So it would be interesting to see how this digitalization changes not only Inequalities amongst people, but also inequalities
1: um, that are related to national belonging and, um, and, and nationality. And I would imagine also inequalities within the home, if you have both parents working from home and trying to negotiate child care schedules Indeed. and all that. That's certainly part of that. Who, who has access to this and who can, who can in fact, uh, um,
0: uh, be a digital worker?
1: Well, I look forward to learning more about it as it progresses, as your work progresses on this topic, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you again for speaking with me. Thank you.